Welcome to Be Positive, a new show for men's radio station. Unlike the name suggests, this has nothing to do with blood groups, but it has everything to do with what makes people positive, empowered, and I guess ultimately content or happy, although they both seem like really weak words for something we all strive for. It's a perfect fit for men's radio station, which is dedicated to well-being and mental health, finding out what motivates people and how they overcome adversity with a positive mental attitude. It's something we can all benefit from hearing about. And each show, I'll be interviewing some positive, interesting and fun people. We need to be aware of our own energy levels. I think that is the first thing, and that is super important. I think positive, a lot of positivity can come from realising what's going well and what's good. And I want this to be where you and I together dive into the minds of people who are positive and motivated and find out how and why and what we can do to replicate that in our day-to-day lives. Having those the past couple of months has put a strain on any person's level of positivity, so it seems quite an apt time to be starting this show. Now, this sort of stuff has always been of interest to me. In my life, I've been an entertainer, a corporate presenter and a producer, but I've always had a sort of armchair interest in stuff like NLP and psychology. Some of the things I've discovered along the way I'll share with you from time to time, but most importantly, we're here to hunt down people who might have answers, ideas and solutions and basically nick their stuff. Personally, I've always had a roller coaster type of mental attitude, knowing how to hide behind a mask, being an entertainer, going through some big decade long dips, some amazing highs, but never really getting my head medically checked or anything. In short, I'm your average middle aged bloke, I'd reckon. I'm still paying the price for some of my lows. I'm still reaping the rewards of some of my highs. And my big issue with motivational podcasts and books is they're either too happy clappy for me or just too overpowering when I hear someone start a podcast with, Hi guys, welcome to Motivation. It has me reaching for the back button pretty quickly. So I can promise you openness and honesty and you and I are on this journey together. So I'll try and get the answers you want and I'll try out some of the things we hear with you. So what I want us to try and do is to create a big mind buffet where each guest will bring some dishes, put them on the table for us to try. Why a buffet? Well, at a buffet you can sample items and you can go back for items you like and the things you like less you just can leave on the side. So by that I mean there are going to be ideas that you love and there are going to be others that you think well that's not for me. So hopefully we'll end up with plates piled high with good tasty stuff and very little spat into napkins and left on the side of the table. But you get the idea. Just so you know, we're recording this during lockdown, which means all of my guests will either be on the telephone or on an internet conference. So my starting point for deciding on who to invite on the show came from me running through my life and trying to think of everybody I've met who comes across as totally motivated and positive, or that I'd seen overcome situations or change themselves in amazingly focused ways. The first person I thought of when I sat down to think of highly positive people was an old friend who I haven't seen for years and years. And I tracked them down and lo and behold, they're now living in the States and they've turned this positive outlook on life into a career. So I have pleasure in saying hello to Dr. Steve Bedwell. Hello. Now, 
I don't want to get this wrong. So how would you describe what you do for a living? I would be described, and the reason I'm saying it that way will become clear in a moment. People would describe me as a motivational speaker. I'm hired to open conferences for corporations and associations. So they'll have their three-day kickoff and I'll go in, I'll do the opening keynote, I'll energize the group, I'll give them some powerful uh, tactics for effective living. Everything will culminate in this memorable experience, highly interactive, lots of fun, hopefully ending with a standing ovation. And if you saw me on stage, you'd say, yep, that guy's a motivational speaker. If you didn't know my name and you were looking to find me online, you would search motivational speaker. So certainly that's how society has labeled me, motivational speaker. Right. But you haven't always been a motivational speaker. No, 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 no. Um, I have the weirdest background. I uh, was a doctor, um, a physician at the Royal London Hospital. And uh, after graduating medical school, I, I did that for about seven or eight years. And then this bit, I know you are aware of, then I quit medicine, quit my medical practice to become a full-time magician. <laughs> bit of a leap, yes. <laughs> a, a crazy leap. When I think about it now... It was absolutely insane. I can't believe I did that. I really can't. My my 57-year-old self can't believe that my 32-year-old self did that. It was insane. <laughs> so what made you want to change? I'm somebody that's always been about following my dreams and my passions, um, which again sounds very motivational speak, but it really is true. And so throughout my teenage years and into my 20s, I wanted to be a doctor. So I did a degree, a scientific degree in clinical biochemistry, uh, worked as a scientist for a while, then got into medical school, um, became, as I say, a physician working at a London teaching hospital. Um, but over those years, I started to notice my another passion of mine, being on stage and performing, really come to the fore. And then I had the experience of winning the Gold Cups, the International Brotherhood of Magicians Gold Cups, in the USA in 94. And that, that transformed everything. Suddenly I was being asked to perform around the world and it all became far more exciting than my day job, which of course was being a doctor. I will say, um, in hindsight, I left medicine way before I had a game plan for being an effective, uh, not only performer, but also business person, because as you know, if you want to be a performer, it's show business. Half of it is business. And I didn't know anything about business. So from that point of view, honestly, I, everything's been fine and I got super lucky and I now make a living as a, a professional speaker over here in the U S but, um, it could have all gone horribly wrong. <laughs> the, the, the business of show is only wise used to describe it. Yes. And he's right. Yeah. There is a lot more to it than just uh, being on stage for half an hour. Yeah, that's the funnest bit, but it's certainly not the only bit. So you say people would describe you as a motivational speaker. Mm. How would you describe yourself? Well, the first thing to say is I don't believe that if you lined up all the motivational speakers in the world, that as a group, they would have any more, be more motivated or less motivated than the general public. I really don't. I think motivation is a myth. And so, uh, in fact, in my speech, my, my, the title of my speech is how to screw up, stress out and get nothing done. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's not motivating, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's attention grabbing, right? Which turns out to be even more important when you're speaking. Like when I uh, look down the, the conference brochure and I see the titles of all the conference, uh, all the, you know, the keynote sessions and the breakout sessions, etc. That one always stands out. And it's all based on the idea that in order to be more successful, be more effective, we need to understand why we sometimes fail. And one of the ways we fail is when we get sucker punched by the motivation myth, which is that um, in order to get things done, it depends on motivation. So it's not quite as easy as just standing on your chair and whooping as some motivational speakers would have you believe. Yeah, and I'm not averse to uh, high-energy folk. You know, there is a place, obviously, my, as I mentioned before, my role in being there to open a conference, to kick off a conference, is to get people excited, get them energized. But there is a world of difference between creating a memorable event where you're sharing ideas and tactics that will help people in their business and personal lives and then creating that, you know, the whoop, the results in the standing ovation. That's all very well, but there is a world of difference between that and for the audience members to go home and think motivation is the key to getting done what they need to get done. So are we saying motivation is just a quick high and it doesn't help you in the long term? I understand why people get sucked into it because there are times when we feel motivated. Like, for example, New Year's Eve, everyone on the planet is motivated to break all their bad habits, create new habits. And as we all know, by January 8th, everything's back to the way it was. I know we're having this conversation on June 5th. I noticed on June 1st, I felt massively motivated, which made me smile because I knew we'd be having this conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then at the beginning of a project, you know, I, there's, you're never more motivated than right at the beginning of a project where you can see everything lined up and it's all going to be wonderful. The problem is that motivation is just another word for mental energy. And our mental energy fluctuates. And you can't rely on a fluctuating resource because just like a flaky friend, sooner or later, that resource and that friend are going to let you down. I described in my introduction about a sort of roller coaster of being highly motivated and completely the opposite. How do you yes. get then from the times when you were at your lowest ebb back to your peak performance of being motivated? Well, the first thing to do, and the reason, of course, you experience that roller coaster is exactly what I was saying. Motivation is another word for mental energy, and mental energy is going to fluctuate. And it's, it's a fantasy, you know, this idea that, oh, yeah, I can just be so energized. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, some people have more mental energy than others, but even those who have more mental energy and on average are a little more motivated, it will still fluctuate. And so the first thing I would say is we need to be very aware of our mental energy levels because they fluctuate and we need to pay attention to those fluctuations. Some people like me wake up, I spring out of bed and I cannot wait to get going. I'm generally up and running by about six o'clock. I hit my computer, I'm doing some typing, I'm looking at some stuff, whatever. But come two o'clock, I start to drag. And then there's other people who start slow, they need that coffee, they need to take the shower and then 
you know, they come online maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. So we need to be aware of our own energy levels. I think that is the first thing, and that is super important because when you become more mindful of where you're at during the course of a typical day, then you can start to match energy to task. Okay, I get it. So we should be aware of our mental energy level and then pair that to a particular task. I, I like to think of it as this, right? Here's a tactic for you. I think about it as the three-hour rule, which is today, Paul, if you only had three hours of highly motivated, highly creative, tip-top mental energy available to you, what would you do during those three hours? And that's what you do during those, that period of the day when you're at maximum maximum energy so you're fitting the task to suit the is mood the right word well you're matching energy to task it's not so much mood it's just that awareness of you know i'm feeling motivated right now i'm feeling energized and we we notice it and one of the i'm actually writing a book called i noticed that a mantra for effective living and it's all based on the idea that there are Loads and loads of books. If you go to the library, there are loads of books on pop psychology. You know, Richard Wiseman's written a bunch of them. And there are, of course, lots of well-recognized experts that have written books on how the brain works and um, how emotion works and why we fall into bad habits, etc. And then on the other end, we've got uh, loads of people writing books on effective tactics for forging better habits of handling our emotions, solving problems. The bit that's missing is that bit in the middle. We've got all the understanding. We've got all the tactics that we can apply. What's missing is that ability to notice the various red flags in real time. So I am a big believer in noticing. I noticed that. And one of the things we need to notice is our energy levels and then start matching energy to task. And is noticing these and being aware of your energy levels more important than avoiding things that will zap your energy levels? First thing is this awareness. The second thing is is cross depletion. For example, uh, psychologists will give a group of volunteers an impossible a puzzle to solve. It's one that's unsolvable. It's impossible. But they'll, they'll get them to work on it for a period of time. Then on the way out of the room, apparently, you know, just an incidental thing, which of course is the actual object of the exercise, as is often the case with, with psychologists. If they, even, if they ever give you a second task, it's often the second task that's actually the important one. And on this occasion, they gave people, the, they just offered them a snack and they offered them an apple or a candy bar. And they noticed that the people who'd been through that impossible puzzle and tried to spend 20 minutes sort of racking their brains trying to solve the unsolvable were far more likely to take the candy bar than the apple. And that's because the mental energy they had expended working on this impossible puzzle left them uh, mentally depleted and so that they went with their bad habits. Because when our mental energy levels decline, we fall back into our typical uh, behaviors, one of which, of course, is our bad habits. So, and you can do this in all kinds of different ways. For example, another experiment, they asked people to watch uh, an emotionally upsetting movie, but to suppress their emotions. 
Then at the end of that, they ask them to, to complete a puzzle. And again, the people who've been suppressing and trying to regulate their emotions have exhausted their mental energy. And then those folks give up far more quickly on the puzzle. So it turns out that the mental energy we need to manage our impulses, regulate our emotions, solve problems, make decisions, all comes out of this same mental bucket. And so there's cross depletion. And that is really important to appreciate. So sometimes trying too hard will slip you back into bad habits. Well, it's not so much trying too hard as being aware that if you have a really busy day at work, you're going to have a much tougher time when you get home, for example, of sticking to a diet. If you have a very stressful day at work, the likelihood is much greater that when you get home, you'll end up having a disagreement with your partner. So there's this cross-depletion. And so the implication of that, firstly, is if motivation is mental energy, then, boy, we're going to burn through that mental energy even quicker if it's all coming out of the same bucket. All these different mental tasks we have to complete are all coming out of the same bucket. And secondly, it makes us more mindful of those times when, you know what, I am, this has been such a stressful day at work. Maybe this isn't the right time to be making an important decision. So there's a lot of self-awareness about your bucket and what's come out of the bucket, what's still in the bucket at various points of the day. Yes, I noticed that. Mantra for effective living. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the title of the book. Exactly. So you're saying the amount of mental energy we have is limited. So are there techniques we can put in place to use our limited amount of mental energy more effectively? Totally, yes. Now, bearing in mind, as I said before, when our mental energy is low, we tend to default to our habits, good or bad, because habits, by definition, are mental mechanisms that are triggered by default. So they don't require a lot of energy, don't require a lot of mental energy. And so consequently, when we are mentally depleted, we tend to fall into our habits, good or bad. We need to make it as easy as possible to do whatever we want or need to do. So, for example, if your goal is to get to the gym, then set out your gym clothes the night before. If your goal is to complete a project, then set out everything you need on your desk the night before. So you're making it as easy as you possibly can to do what you want or need to do. So it requires less mental energy. So make life as easy as you can for yourself so you're only expelling mental energy on the things that really count. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And conversely, of course, if there's uh, something that you, you're trying to avoid doing, then you do the opposite. Rather than it requiring less mental energy, you make it more difficult where it requires more mental energy. I cannot count the number of people that have complained about the time they spend on Facebook. <laughs> oh, I spend so, I waste so much time on Facebook. If only I could do something about it. Of course you can do something about it. Remove the Facebook app from your phone. 
or have your partner change the password and only give it to you later that day. Or what I do, I use Chrome as my browser and I have an extension that specifically blocks my newsfeed on Facebook and replaces it with, ironically, a motivational quote. (laughs) So uh, every time I go to Facebook, it says, hey, you need to be getting back to work in some form. <laughs> some, in some version of a quote, it's basically saying, stop looking at Facebook and get back to work. And it's uh, something like Newsfeed Eradicator for Facebook, and it's a Chrome extension. So for people using a Chrome browser, if that would be helpful to them, that's a really cool tool. It does seem um, that social media has become an addiction that just depresses people much like most addictions do in the end. When we were talking about um, getting dressed for work and laying out your gym kit, it's like making a, a goal. How, how important is it to make goals to motivate yourself to actually get started? Goals are hugely important, so hugely important that we should probably leave them Uh, for a session all of their own. And I'd happily come back and chat with you about that on another occasion. One thing I will say, just to give you a little sort of taster of that, is there's a big difference between what's known as a process goal and an end goal. Let me explain the difference. If uh, a lady, for example, is getting married and she makes the decision that before her wedding, she wants to drop 10 pounds, right? That is an end goal. She has a particular end date in mind and she wants to drop that 10 pounds before her wedding day. A process goal is saying, I want to get to a healthy weight and here are the steps I need to do that. And the difference is one ends and the other one doesn't. You know, for example, the person gets married, they drop their 10 pounds, they get married. Then there's a good chance that they'll start to put that weight on again because they're not thinking in terms of process. They're thinking in terms of end goal. So the most effective goals are the ones that where you're thinking about how can I put processes in place to work more effectively or eat more healthily or exercise more regularly because there's no de- there's no um, date when those goals expire. So that's just some one little thing about goals to think about. Think in terms of process rather than end. I do like the term process goals and you're right. Goal setting and effective goal setting does deserve a whole show on its own because I'm guilty of, and I know lots of other people who are, of setting unrealistic goals and then getting despondent when uh, you don't reach them. Well, there's that whole uh, Goldilocks principle. You know, Goldilocks didn't want the porridge to be too cold, too hot. She needed it to be just right. And it's the same with goals. If you set goals that are too easy then there's no motivation there. If you set goals that are too hard, like you want a Ferrari by the end of the month, then you're not going to achieve. And so they don't motivate you. However, a goal that's uh, set to to a helpful level that pushes you just that little bit further than you maybe would have done, that's, that's more of a useful goal science smart concepts here that come from laboratories um, and from obviously neuroscientists and psychologists and sociologists. And so these are principles that will work uh, regardless of who you are, because ultimately our brains work in a very similar way. Um, So one final idea I wanted to share with you, Paul, is this bias for instant action. 
because our brain will try and talk us out of anything that involves a lot of mental effort. And so if we allow it to do that, we tend to get a lot less done than we otherwise would. And so one tactic, and this was a tactic that I, this is a tactic that I love and I wanted to hate because it's so simple. And it comes from a lady called Mel Robbins, who's a speaker here in the US, and she calls it the five second rule. Um, on stage, I tend to call it the four-second rule because four seconds is quicker than five seconds. It doesn't get mixed up with the other five-second rule, which is when you drop food on the floor. If you pick it up within five seconds, it's still okay. Yes. <laughs> and also, <laughs> also, I avoid copyright issues. So, um, But it's actually her idea, and it's called the five-second rule, and it's simply this. Whenever you're, you're in that situation where you, you were describing earlier, you don't feel that energy, you're not feeling that push uh, to take action. If there's something you, you want or need to do, you count five, four, three, two, one, and then you take action. Regardless, you just take action. If you know you need to get to the gym, you don't give yourself the opportunity to talk yourself out of it. And that I found to be amazingly useful. So those days, and again, some days I don't have the energy I do other days. So those days when I wake up and I know I need to get to the gym but don't want to, I don't spend a lot of time, well, you know, I could go to, because it's so easy. We all know how easy it is to talk ourselves out of these, these actions that we want or need to take. So instead of allowing my brain to do that to me, to pull that dirty trick on me, I just go five, four, three, two, one, jump out of bed, jump into those clothes that I set to one side the night before, jump in the car, and then providing I point the car in the right direction, once I get to the gym, somebody else takes over because I'm in a class and someone is telling me what to do and I just do what I'm told. So this idea, five, four, three, two, one, go, is so powerful. And as I say, it's so simple that I, I wanted to dismiss it. I wanted to hate it, but I don't. It's absolutely a fabulous idea. It really, really is. A procrastination eliminator. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So, Steve, before I let you go off to the gym, give us one more tidbit to leave on our buffet table of positivity. Whenever you start looking at aspects of your mental life or aspects of your behavior, be it emotional regulation or habit change or uh, making dumb decisions, whatever it is, we, we tend to beat ourselves up because suddenly it's like, oh boy, we see these as character flaws rather than inbuilt biological mechanisms like this whole idea of you know, we've got to be thinking about mental energy in the correct way in order to live in an effective manner. Um, and it's real, we tend to beat ourselves up and we're far harder on ourselves generally than we are on other people. If we, uh, the things we say to ourselves in our own head, we wouldn't dream of saying to other people. And so it's really important to have this non judgmental detached attitude to look at our, our own behaviors and emotions and habits and so forth as interesting and be curious about them, much as a scientist would be curious about whatever he or she is doing in an experiment. There's a detachment, there's a non-judgmental curiosity, and it's detached rather than getting all caught up in this self-judgment. 
And so I find a phrase that's really helpful for me. And of course, this is again where this, the idea of this book came from. Whenever I'm looking at my own habits, things I want to change, new habits I want to forge, whenever I'm looking at my own emotion and the days that I'm feeling frustrated or anxious or whatever it happens to be, whenever I make a dumb decision, which of course from time to time we all do, I, I think about it with this preface. I say, how interesting. I noticed that. And that reminds me to, to approach it as I would a scientific experiment in a detached non-judgmental way i couldn't agree more in fact i've given that advice to from a performance point of view to numerous people over the years of uh-huh. it, you've got to look at the person on stage as a totally separate person because otherwise you will never be objective about what's right and what's wrong in your act in your performance and you'll also get hurt by every criticism Whereas if you take a step back and look in and analyse as if that's a different person, then you've got far better chance of, of seeing it objectively. And I suppose what you're saying is do that with your day-to-day life. Yeah, and do it when you're thinking about it, when you're giving yourself feedback. I agree, by the way, 100%. I, years ago, I did a stand-up Um, comedy class in the UK for a couple of years and one of the repeated mantras from the instructor was uh, as people in the audience were giving feedback to the performer is that your material is being judged, you are not being judged, people don't even know you, even if they don't like your personality, they're seeing a curated version of you on stage which may may or may not be working, but it's not you and I 100% agree with that advice, right all the way down the line. All of us have this mental energy which we deploy in different ways. And ultimately, it's about how effectively can we deploy this fluctuating resource with full understanding and in a science smart way. Thank you so much for talking to us, Steve. So from Florida in the US to the other side of the world, I know I'm pushing the boat out because it's the first show. From now on, we probably won't get any guests any further away than Slough. But this is a lady called Sarah Punch from Australia a highly motivated person who I got to meet through my wife, who is also Australian. Welcome to the show, Sarah, and just give us a bit of context about yourself. So I live in Australia, Melbourne. I'm a music therapist, which not many people have heard of, but it's basically using music to achieve non-musical goals. So music, I, I explain it as music is the toolbox, and then the outcomes are therapeutic. So whether that's mental health related or communication related or physical goals, um, whatever it is that that person needs help with, we try to help them, but we use music as a tool. And how did you end up doing this as a vocation? So it's actually a master's degree. So when I, I basically was studying education to be a teacher and I just had this freak out moment of this isn't right, this isn't I've never stopped to really reflect on why I was wanting to be a teacher. It's just what I was doing. So the train was going and I was on the train, but I never stopped to get off at the station to think, okay, is this really where I want to go? Um, Until it was at the very end and I was faced with, okay, this is it. Like you're going to be in schools and teaching and just thought that's not what I want to do, teach music year after year, the same thing over and over. I felt like the creativity side might not be there for me. Um, And also the 
I guess I had this real desire to help people who were not as privileged as me, that real desire. Um, And someone had mentioned that their niece was getting music therapy and I was, my interest was immediately piqued. What is music therapy? Um, And I looked into it and it was like, it just was, yeah, immediately something that I, that resonated with me. So I went straight from my undergrad into applying for music therapy, which I failed. I didn't get in the first year. (laughs) Yep. Um, and the reason being I needed to do some more, I needed to go and do a year of psychology first. So I went and studied the necessary psychology, learnt uh, piano and guitar, which I hadn't played before. I was a vocalist but not an instrumentalist and then got in the second year that I applied. And then, yeah, here we are. Wow. Ten years later, yeah, being a music therapist. So was music a big part of your life before you decided to do this course? Yeah, I've always been a singer. So ever since I was little, it's just something that was natural for me. So I sort of was always in choirs and then started getting solos in primary school and it sort of snowballed into a big part of my life and my identity and enjoyment. And then through high school it started to become, oh, maybe I can make a career out of this um, in the performing sense but I really wasn't very good musically in terms of um, music theory, music notation, all of those sorts of things are really foreign to me. I had to work so hard to be able to get to a level that other people were at. Um, So, yeah, then when it came to applying for performance courses, they'd have a theory test and I just, you know, I just wasn't up to standard that other people were. Um, And I actually didn't study senior music at high school, which was a big mistake. Um, But the reason being, it stopped being enjoyable for me. Um, studying music, the theory of it, just took the fun out of something that was free and creative. So when I discovered music therapy, it was like, oh, here's this thing where you get to use music, but there are no rules. It doesn't have to be a perfect composition. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, you don't have to be a singer to do music therapy. You, the, the music part of it was completely like a blank canvas um, and you know, it didn't discriminate. And so that's sort of what drew me in. But yes, music's always been a big part of my life. Well, you obviously love what you do. Do you think it's important to have a career that you love as opposed to one that just pays the bills? I think I'm really lucky in that sense. And I talk to friends often about this, the job satisfaction side of things, uh, because friends are often... um, sort of expressing to me that they seek out ways to make themselves feel like they're contributing, whereas that's sort of inherent in my job. You know, I'm working with kids with disabilities, kids with cancer, um, people who are palliative, you know, who are end-stage life. And so the feeling of contributing is, is sort of inbuilt into my profession. So I don't sort of need that. I don't need to seek it elsewhere because I sort of have that on a daily basis. Yeah, so I, I am often reminding myself of how grateful I am to have that sort of, and I, I really thank my parents because they were the ones that always said to me, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And they always supported it. 
even though they probably had their reservations along the way, <laughs> especially when I was doing course after course, I'm like, oh, what are you doing? Um, you know, I nearly graduated from teaching and then all of a sudden I'm doing another degree, but they always sort of supported finding something that's going to you know, fill up your cup and make you feel good and, yeah. So I regard you as a very driven person. Do you see yourself as having a positive mental attitude? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a big part of, I'm not always positive, but I think overall I'm a generally kind of optimistic person. But I have daily reminders of why my life, why I'm so blessed. And uh, like I go into someone's home and they, you know, it's a child with multiple disabilities and they're a family of six living in a two-bedroom unit and you know, it's a very quick reminder, in-your-face reminder of how good I have it and to be thankful. And, yeah, I think I'm fortunate in that sense because it's those times where I do tend to have those why me, poor me moments is very quickly um, brought into check when I'm surrounded by people who are really genuinely facing adversity. Right. When we spoke on email about doing this interview, you mentioned something that really stood out, um, and that was you felt you were more positive and motivated because you had it in your genes. That's not something I ever considered. I assumed it was a sort of nurtured disposition. But you think you're born with it? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I was having a conversation with a friend about this recently that um, you know, what, what, what percentage of positivity and optimism comes from genetics? Um, and I think there were actually studies that were done that I think they found that it was about 50%. Wow. So they did, yeah, they did studies, don't, don't quote me on it, but I think they did a study with twins and they found that 50% of our tendency towards positivity or optimism is genetic and then 50% is, I think, environment and and the choices we make, I think. So I I think that the genetic side of it is is um, makes me feel grateful because when I face adversity, I tend to try to find the good or the the positive. Um, aspect of the silver lining or you know the light at the end of the tunnel it's sort of and I don't have to work very hard to try and find it you know I just sort of have to remind myself and then there it is where a friend of mine who struggles with depression has to work so much harder and it doesn't come as easily to her to find that silver lining and I think that that comes from genetics personally plus you've had that support from your parents yeah yeah so when you're having an off day or hour, as we all do, how do you motivate yourself and elevate your mood? Uh, well, I keep a little list. Actually, I had this stuck up on my wall for a while right when I come in my door and it's things I'm grateful for. I just wrote it up on a piece of cardboard and basically I've got, you know, coloured pens there. So when I walk in the door from home from work, I write down for that day something that I'm grateful for. And then all of a sudden it's this filled page of things, you know, whether it's family or, you know, the lovely person that served my coffee that gave me an extra shot or 
um, you know, down to like the support that I've gotten from family and friends during a tough time. So it's small things and larger things. I think that's actually something that really helps me and potentially might help other people. I think positive, a lot of positivity can come from realising what's going well and what's good because we do have this tendency towards focusing on all the things that are going wrong and things that are going bad. So if you can have a visual representation of all the things that are actually going good, then hopefully it's, you know, a little bit easier. Yes, I think it's far better to have a visual reminder of good things and things to be thankful for as opposed to a pile of bills stuck to your notice board. Exactly, exactly. And I think we have those things on autopilot. The negative is really easy to go to. The positive is harder. So I think sometimes you need a bit of extra help to to remind yourself to focus on those on those positives. So what characteristics do you think you've got? Obviously, being grateful is one of them. What else would mm-hmm. you say that you had that gives you such a positive disposition? Well, I think when you're talking about positivity, really being positive when things are going well is pretty easy. I think the real test of positivity and optimism comes when you face adversity. So if I'm thinking about times, you know, I had a recent time of being quite unwell, trying to find the positives in a really unpleasant, challenging situation in my life. And I think that having people around me and feeling support is one of the most important things for me. I think the other thing is not personalizing adversity. So like other things that are happening, negative things that are happening in the world. So not taking that on as a personal burden is a big thing. So not feeling like for COVID's a good example, like COVID's happening in the world. It's very easy to go, why me? Poor me. This is awful. And it is, it's a, it's a truly horrible thing that's happening throughout the world. But For me, I don't take it on as a personal negative event in my life. I look at it as a global thing that we're all going through together and it's not a personal thing that's happening to me. The other thing is I have a tendency to really view things as temporary. So when something bad happens, I don't have this overwhelming feeling like it's going to, this is it. This is it. It's going to be like this forever. I'm never going to find the way out, which I think can happen when you have that kind of tendency towards um, negativity. For me, I think it's okay. I'll get through. This is only temporary. Like with COVID, this is, you know, something that's happening now. It's not going to be forever. Um, And I have clients that will say to me, this is it. Like this is, it's never going to be better. I'm never going to find a way out of this. It's, it's overwhelming. I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and so I try to steer them towards, you know, finding the things that are going to help them view this as a temporary situation. So who inspires you? My clients, <laughs> honestly, quite honestly. When I've had those moments, of, you know, even things like little things like being nervous about something, right? So having nerves about doing a particular thing. I often think about my clients who are going through so much more or perhaps clients that might have lost their lives before they even got the chance to be at a point to feel nervous about 
a situation like this. Um, for example, going up to a, a guy that I think is attractive and saying hello. I remind myself that, you know, I've got these kids who didn't even make it past 8, 9, 10 to this point of having this dilemma. So to just embrace it and, you know, be brave. And, um, yeah, so my clients for sure are my inspiration. I guess also my dad because he's been through quite a lot and overcome quite a lot in his life. So I really view him as an inspiration. And he's, he's so positive. Like he's, you know, he's someone who can find the humour in any situation. And, yeah, so I definitely kind of draw inspiration from Dad as well. Dad and I, you know, Dad's someone I can have these kind of DNMs with <laughs> um, and and really kind of delve into the nitty gritty. He's, he likes kind of self-help things and so do I. And so we kind of can bond over, over trying to improve ourselves and learn more about life and the mind. And, you know, he's, he's overcome things in his life and um, has come out the other side in quite an amazing way. So, yeah. So in amongst all the self-help books you say you and your dad are keen on, which techniques have you tried most recently? One of the things recently that I've been doing that is mindfulness and basically just quietening. I'm someone who I get alerts on my phone. You know, you've used your phone nine hours of the day or something. These are ridiculous numbers. So I've tried to start to distance myself from, from that. And I find that mindfulness strategies is really helpful for sort of quietening the noise and it doesn't mean, you know, sitting with your legs crossed and, oh, you know, doing your kind of um, more traditional relaxation. It might be, you know, washing up the dishes but then really just focusing on, you know, the feel of the water and the sound of the bubbles popping and just becoming really present in, in something that you're doing. I actually find really helpful to just, yeah, distance myself from the, the overwhelm or, and noise because I think our minds can be so busy these days with all the stresses that we've got and we go over it in our heads and we lay in bed at night and go over all of these things and what we've got to do the next day. And so I do find that actively having those strategies does help. I think often people think with meditation that it has to be a big ta-da, you know, um, but it can be just really small. There are also some great apps like the um, Smiling Mind app is really good for short little meditations and there's another one here in Australia I'm not sure if you can get it overseas called Headspace that's got all different kind of um, activities and things for for mindfulness. So what do you avoid to help you stay positive? I can't tell you the last time I turned on the news because I know it's not going to make me feel good. I do question that sometimes because I think oh am I just a head in the sand head in the sanding, but I'm not. I'm aware of what's going on. I just know that seeing images of it and hearing all about it over and over and over just doesn't do me any good. So I do tend to avoid that. I also avoid get over committing myself. That's definitely something that I've learned over the years work-wise. Not so much in my personal life, but more so work, you know, saying yes, yes, yes to every opportunity and then getting to a point where okay I'm completely overwhelmed and I don't have enough hours in the day and why did I say yes to this and staying up all all you know doing all-nighters to try and get things done 
that does not impact me in a positive way. So I try to avoid to do that and just take on what I know I can do well. Uh, and the other thing I avoid is like lifestyle things. So I avoid um, putting myself in a position where I'm not going to get enough sleep or I'm eating really terribly. So, yeah. So COVID-19 has been a good test of everyone's motivation. Did you manage to turn a very negative situation around? So I actually had a huge panic because it's I'm single. I don't have a second income to back me up. You know, if I don't have an income, I don't. I can't pay rent. I can't pay bills. I can't, you know, so it was a big deal. So I, I actually went into major panic mode and, you know, started um, drafting emails to send to clients. Um, I looked at programs. I bought a mic. I bought a camera. I bought a light. I tried to reassure them that I'd do whatever I could do to, to, to kind of transition them seamlessly to the online setting, even though I was thinking this isn't going to work. Uh, <laughs> and, but I just kept like telling myself, it just, it has to, I don't have a choice. Like this has to work. Otherwise I'm really going to struggle. Um, and I did look up little resource boxes of instruments and um, visual resources to, to basically deliver to them. I drove around houses and all gloved up and dropped them off. And the response was, really positive and it's actually been amazing to see how people have been able to transition online and see how music therapy can actually work in that forum which has kind of blown my mind I actually probably was leaning more towards the negative I suppose in that situation but it's been amazing um and it's also taught me that what I can achieve when I hustle I don't know if I was a little bit lazy before, but <laughs> this this has really forced me to hustle. I actually had my best month finance-wise in April. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, what, what is going on? And it's just because I really went into overdrive to, to make it work and I went above and beyond and then it sort of really flourished. <laughs> so, so that's a huge positive personally. I don't know if this is tactful to say but I think that there's a lot of positives to come from COVID generally in society I think it's I think aside from yeah you agree absolutely I agree I've seen so many positives come out of COVID from community spirit to burnt out people being forced to take a break right through to like what you're saying forcing people to take action and diversify their business and find new opportunities yeah, we, we're, we can't be passive in our lives at this current time. We have to be proactive. And people can take pride in surviving what is a shitty time for the whole world. And if you made it through, you can be really proud of your achievements. And, you know, I think it's also a reminder that we don't always have to be doing amazingly. Like, it's okay to just be surviving. And, you know, that might be the achievement that, you know, during this incredibly tough time, instead of letting it all get the best of me and completely, you know, unraveling my life, I've managed to just keep my head above water. And that's the success, you know. So I think success during COVID comes in many different forms. Um, I think for a lot of people, you know, living alone, um, or not having that social contact with people is really tough. So I think if people are just main, maintaining, you know, who otherwise may have, you know, really struggled to 
keep their head above water is pretty amazing. And I applaud everyone for kind of getting through it in whatever way they have. Plus, I know people who've spoken more to their parents, family and friends during lockdown than they ever did, which is really positive. Yeah. I mean, I even find that with yeah my family who are all in a different state. There's much more interaction online now. Now you're seeing your clients online. I'm intrigued. How does music therapy actually work? I think the thing with music therapy is it's completely different for every person. So for some people, it might be someone has anxiety or depression. It might be coming together to design certain playlists that are going to help with their coping and looking at, you know, using music, recorded music as an active tool to boost your mood or help you manage symptoms of anxiety because music's very powerful and it's also global. It's, it's something that is accessible for everyone. It's portable and it's incredibly powerful in terms of, you know, affecting your mood and your coping with adversity. So that's something that lucky for me, I don't have to force. It's something that, you know, is, is inherent in music itself. But with, um, you know, I work with kids as well who have disabilities. So we might do singing and I have, you know, my work has actually kind of become more family-based online because I don't have hands in their space. So I need parents or carers to be there to be my hands. So they're becoming, they're learning a lot. You know, I've had families say, wow, I've, like, I've learned so many techniques now being so active in this process of therapy. You know, so whether it's helping kids who have cerebral palsy, who struggle to grip, be motivated to keep that tight grasp of the drumsticks so that um, we can play music together. Or going back to mental health, it might be people who are really struggling at the time and we can write a song about it. You know, some people don't really find traditional talk therapy so helpful. So for people who really struggle to, you know, sit in a chair and, and talk to someone about their problems, I might be able to come in and look at music and the ways that we can open up that communication and self-expression through the songs that they're listening to rather than having to say the words. You know, you might be able to say it through a piece of music that you're sharing uh, or we might write a song about all of the, the struggles that, that they're going through um, and just that act of getting those um, negative thoughts out and onto paper and then into this beautiful kind of musical form is is helpful. So in actual fact, when I was a frustrated teenager writing songs in my bedroom, I was actually doing my mental health some good. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you probably know this, like, you know, what feelings you got in putting that on the page and having it, you know, contained in something positive. You know, it's not sort of just writing a journal entry. It's you're actually putting it into something that's like a positive package, um, taking pain and putting it into something beautiful can be a really, yeah, beneficial experience. I love that you that you wrote songs. Do you still do that or is that? No, but you know what, thinking about it now, I'm thinking I, I should do that because I don't yeah. keep a journal and a way of packaging good and bad things mm. into, into little packets to store somewhere where no one will see them, I might add. 
definite. It doesn't need to be shared. It can be if you if you want it to be. But you know, music is something that we can keep for ourselves and we can keep it private and we can re-access it when we need to, or we can pack it up in a box and put it away, you know. And sometimes that act is helpful too, to just you know take that that negative experience or that thought and and put it in this nice contained little package and then put it away and you know I know it's there but I don't have to revisit it all the time can be helpful you know I think the thing with music is that it's it's something you you can draw on anytime and it's it's if you have a the reason I encourage people to have a playlist is that sometimes it's really hard when you're going through um, a tough time to draw on coping strategies right so it's it's something that you know, it's, you have to really, if it's not ingrained and it's not an automatic thing, you have to work really hard to remind yourself to, to access that. If you've got a playlist that's already set up that you know is going, that it's full of songs that are going to help improve your mood and make you, hopefully help you get over that hump and make you feel brighter, more um, relaxed, happier, then you don't have to work as hard. Whereas if you've got all your songs in your playlist and you're having to skip and one comes on that's triggering negatively and, you know, another one that's kind of sad, it's it's not going to be as helpful as if you've just got, bam, like, you know, your coping playlist, give it a really punchy name. Um, yeah, music really has been shown to be able to boost mood when people are feeling, you know, in a negative space. So, Okay, so uh, we're going to end by me asking you what's on your playlist? Oh, my gosh. Well, this is something that, you know, I've learned over the course of working with so many people and so many different types of music to never be embarrassed by your taste in music. If it's a, if it's a time where I'm feeling a bit flat, uh, I kind of have two playlists. One is one that is sort of like a chill playlist, like mirroring how I'm feeling almost, like just really chill. Um, and it's mostly folk music. So a mix of like male singers and female singer-songwriters, I suppose. Um, And then my kind of playlist moving on to feeling a bit more energised and positive once I'm kind of through that side is honestly probably Disney songs (laughs) Um, because, you know, let's face it, I'd love to be a Disney character and live in a Disney world if I could. And it just, yeah, it just makes me happy. I hear these happy Disney songs and it just puts a smile on my face every time. Well, they are so, written to yeah. lift mood, aren't they? they? Yeah, they are. And it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a fantasy world, I suppose. So it's, it's, I kind of put myself in that position and I love singing. So I'll sing along to it. Um, mixed in there is probably pop. <laughs> and see some people, um, you know, I've got clients who, uh, listen to heavy metal as their relaxation playlist. And, you know, we have all these judgments against music, but really there's no, music's not prescriptive. It's not, oh, how wonderful if we did write a script for, you know, go and listen to Mozart five times a day and for two weeks and then you'll be right. Um, it doesn't work like that. It's, it's all, we're all individuals and respond differently to, to music. Um, some people find heavy metal is relaxing because it drowns out what's actually happening in their head they need that overwhelm in the music to really combat and overcome the negative thoughts that are pervasive in their mind so yeah it's yeah music's interesting in that way thank you sarah it's been lovely talking to you 
welcome. Thanks for having me on. I feel so honoured. So today we've heard from two very different people and some great ideas to add to our buffet of ideas for positivity. Steve suggests we should be aware of our mental energy levels and match tasks to fit those levels. And Sarah takes her motivation from contributing and being thankful. You want to find out more about Steve Bedwell, go to stevebedwell.com and to find out more about Sarah Punch and her music therapy, she's at musictherapywellness.com. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you'll join us again for more fun conversations with motivated and positive people here on Men's Radio Station.